It says, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone around him in the prison, and struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on the garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down the street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the word of God now as an act of worship. Lord, would you prepare each one of us accordingly that we might clearly hear what you want to say to us through this portion of your word. We ask your spirit be our teacher and our interpreter and the one who instructs us now in this moment. Speak by your spirit, Lord, we ask expectantly. We pray together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's very important to realize and then to remember and to respect ultimately the one who's in charge. And that certainly applies in a lot of different ways, whether in a family or in a school or in our job place. But we have to remember the ultimate authority is no man. The ultimate authority is always God himself, God who rules over all and God who overrules whenever he deems it necessary. And I think that's really the main lesson, certainly, that we can glean here from chapter 12, that God's ultimately in charge in every circumstance and in every situation. Look back with me in verse 1 as this event unfolds. It tells us in verse 1 in our text, now about that time, Herod the king, it says, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So at this point in the book of Acts, the camera, if you would, turns back now to the church in Jerusalem from the church in Antioch, which we had been looking at. We go back now to the area of Judea and the church in Jerusalem, where we see another wave of mistreatment beginning to happen again among the Lord's people. A political ruler is now using his authority. It says there to harass, your translation may say to persecute. The idea is to severely mistreat and hassle those who are part of the church. We're told in verse one that this ruler, particularly doing this, 
is named Herod. Now, this particularly is who we know as Herod Agrippa I. There will be Herod Agrippa II as we get further along in the book of Acts. Keep in mind in your New Testament, there were many different Herods mentioned in the recording of the New Testament. We have what we call the Herodian dynasty. There was a family of very dysfunctional Herods. Uh, a family that was very dysfunctional in the way they operated. They were very cruel in their actions and their rulership. For example, in the early days of Jesus, there was Herod the Great, not this Herod. Herod the Great, we know, was extremely insecure and incredibly cruel because of that. And he basically eliminated anyone who posed a threat to his throne. Herod the Great murdered wives. He murdered children. It didn't matter to him. If anybody seemed to threaten the potential of him being in charge, he just eradicated them. He just eliminated them, whatever it took. He, in fact, we know was the one who ordered, remember, the death of all the male babies, remember, right after Jesus was born because he didn't want to take any chance of there being a king of the Jews. That was Herod the Great. Then in the days of Jesus' adult life, there was a man named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the one, remember, who stole his brother's wife. And then John the Baptist, remember, rebuked him for his sin and the adulterous relationship that he was having. And so then he beheaded and cut off the head of the prophet John the Baptist and served it up on a, on a platter. And he also is the one, Herod Antipas, who participated in sending Jesus to his crucifixion, ultimately. Well, now we come here to Acts chapter 12, and this is a different Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I, who is the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of Herod Antipas, and yet the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because this guy's just as dysfunctional as the whole rest of the family. And this Herod, who functioned under Roman authority, was given control, we know historically, of the area of Judea and Samaria, more of the central and southern part of Israel as we know it. And Herod uh, Agrippa, this Herod, had a real unique ability as a politician to have favor with and pacify both Rome and the Roman government and the Jews at the exact same time, which was very difficult to do because the Jews despised Roman occupation in their territory. But this Herod had a real ability. He was just a savvy political leader. He practiced some of the Jewish uh, uh, ordinances and some of the Jew uh, things of Judaism. So he had an affinity for that, and that pleased the Jews as they saw that. He also, at the same time, lived a completely double life and immorality, as many of the rulers did. But yet honoring some of the aspects of Judaism gained him favor with his constituency among the Jews. And like many politicians, he just did what kept favor with his constituency. Whatever kept him in office, whatever kept him having favor, he functioned in that manner. And so he kind of kept Rome pacified. He kept the Jewish people who he had as his constituency under his authority, kind of those who uh, continued to have favor with him and liked him in his position. And knowing that the Orthodox religious leaders of the Jews despised the church because they did not like anything that pertained to Jesus of Nazareth and that they had harassed and persecuted the church, we now see him kind of just saying, hey, if that's what works among the people that I rule over, then let me do what the people like. And so he now begins to engage in some of his own harassment and persecution 
against the church as well to curry further approval from the Jewish people who were a part of where he ruled at. So verse 2 says, And then he went on and killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So to gain further political favor in the midst of the persecution and the harassment, he actually goes so far, we're told here, to eliminate via murder one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles, James, we're told here, who was a leader in the church. Now, when it says, verse 2 there, that he killed James with the sword, that's an implication of that he murdered him, most likely by beheading him. Now, that wasn't the common way to put someone to death, but if someone was a heretic, that is what you would typically do in that day. You would, with the sword, take off their head. So, what that implies is he viewed James, as the people in the area did, as a heretic because he was a part of this thing called the way, the church, that they didn't like. So he beheads James, and notice as well, more than one James in our New Testament, this is James, the brother of John. So this is not James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James in our New Testament. This is James, who is a part of that special, member inner circle that Jesus had. Typically, Peter many times, or Jesus, excuse me, many times would bring along Peter, James, and John, and he would at times expose them to certain things of ministry that the other disciples wouldn't be a part of, and he would give them kind of special uh, access to certain things he would do, exposing them to the work of the Lord in unique ways, and it kind of like a little inner circle. Jesus had his own clique, okay? So people say that sometimes, oh, that church has a clique, or the leadership's a click. Well, Jesus had a click. So uh, Jesus invested in these three guys. There was something about them. He wanted to spend time with them. And this is that James who now ends up being not the first Christian martyred, but really you might say the first apostle and the first central leader among the church who's actually put to death and murdered for his commitment to Christ and dies at an early age. Well, verse 3 says, because Herod then saw, after executing James, that this notice pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to then seize Peter also. So, recognizing this harsh treatment and now this murder of one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem pleased the Jewish constituency that he was ruling over, he seeks to further obtain some more favor now by doing whatever it takes. And he says, hey, if this pleased them, then I need to get a hold of Peter because he's another figurehead in the church of Jerusalem. So now we're told he arrests Peter, most likely probably on some religious crime of some sort. He imprisons Peter, planning to now put Peter on trial and likely execute him directly after this religious holiday. Verse 3 tells us there that it was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this seizure and arrest of Peter happens during one of the main religious holidays and celebrations of the Jews, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was basically that week-long feast that was mandatory to observe that led right up to the Passover celebration, that very important time that the Jews would celebrate what God did in Egypt. So verse 4 tells us that when he had arrested Peter, he then put him in prison, delivered him, notice, to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So here we see why Peter 
is basically held in prison for a short period and not executed immediately for his crime of being a heretic like James was in a sense, it told here that the thing that managed to give Peter a little bit of time is Herod was trying to be respectful of the Passover celebration with the Jews. So it tells us that he was intending to bring Peter out before the people, that is for his public trial and then his execution but he was waiting until after the passover again remember the passover was that time when the jews celebrated that powerful deliverance god gave to them out of slavery in egypt to bring them into the promises that god had intended for them so it was a time when god had mercy and spared his people and intervened powerfully to set them free Well, to the Jews, this was a very sacred celebration. So to kill a person on such a day uh, just was unthinkable to them. Although, remember, Jesus was put to death uh, as Passover was being celebrated. Well, that was because Christ was the ultimate fulfillment. It didn't matter what the people were doing. God needed him to die on that day specifically so that he might become the ultimate Passover lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. But here they're kind of wanting to honor their religious holiday. Herod knows this, so he's trying to be a little bit sensitive with his people, but he's intending to bring Peter out right after Passover for his trial and crucifixion. But in the meantime, Peter's left waiting. Verse four there says in the text, notice he's left waiting, being heavily guarded by battle-hardened Roman soldiers. It says there in verse four, that he was in prison, see it says, with four squads of soldiers to guard him there. Now what that's referring to, each squad of four soldiers was typically made of two soldiers who would be chained to the prisoner and then two other soldiers would typically stand guard being armed at the doorways and then they would rotate every six hours. So that's why you have four squads every six hours making up a 24-hour shift, round-the-clock protection And take notice here, here is Peter, and though a faithful servant of the Lord, Peter finds himself trapped in a very difficult situation. Peter's a faithful servant of Jesus, but now he finds himself stuck in a spot where nothing humanly he could do could get him out of the situation. He finds himself stuck in a spot where he's imprisoned no pun intended, in his current situation, and there's nothing Peter can do to change his circumstances. There's nothing he can do in and of himself to set himself free. Let Listen, that times like that are what sets the stage for the power of God. It's times like that when one of the Lord's people is in a spot where circumstantially it's not only difficult, it is impossible for us to change the circumstance for us to fix the problem, for us to get ourselves out of that situation or deliver ourselves from what we're facing or dealing with, look, those become the times when it sets the stage perfectly for God to move, for God to show who's ultimately in charge and for God to demonstrate his power in very real ways. Look, perhaps you can relate. Maybe right now you find yourself in a very difficult circumstance. Maybe you find yourself in some ways almost somewhat imprisoned in a situation and there is nothing humanly you can do to change that circumstance. In fact, maybe you have tried. You have tried to pick every lock, search for every hidden key, 
tried to dig yourself through concrete wall, and you have done everything, perhaps even humanly possible, thinking it through, making efforts, but yet there is nothing that you can humanly do. Well, can I encourage you? There's still something that God can do. Because those situations set a stage where when humanity realizes this is humanly impossible, that God then has a perfect platform if he so chooses to work in his way and in his time to do what is absolutely impossible because with God, there's nothing that seeks to come under the circumstance of impossible. So look what happens, verse 5, as Peter's now in prison, this very dangerous thing. He's about to be executed to be brought out and put to death. In verse 5, I love what it says. It says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Do you notice the spiritually mature response that the church takes to this situation, this matter of Peter's in prison, an impossible dilemma? It appears circumstantially, and it was true, that every door of opportunity is closed. It appears that circumstantially, every door is locked shut, tight as possible. But listen, truthfully, there is only one doorway that still exists. It's the doorway of prayer. Every other door is shut, locked, closed, and there's nobody that's opening that door. But there is one door that's still open. And nobody can close that door. It's the doorway to heaven. It's the doorway of prayer. It's the doorway to have access to still talk to an almighty God who sits upon a throne, who cares about his people. They could still ask God to intervene powerfully. That was the only door that was still open. And look, because one of the spiritual family was suffering, the church came together and constant prayer was offered to God. Because one of the spiritual family was in trouble, the church came together and constant prayer was offered to God. Because one of the spiritual family was facing a difficult, let me say better, impossible situation, the church came together and constant prayer was offered to God. Because one of the spiritual family was a prisoner in a current situation and they were imprisoned like a slave and a prisoner, the church came together and constant prayer was offered to God. That word constant means both continuous and ongoing. That is, they remain faithful, continuously enduring in prayer. But it also, that term can be translated to speak of earnestness or fervency. That is, they were praying continuously, constantly, but they also were praying earnestly in the sense that they were remaining passionate. The idea is they were begging God. And there's nothing wrong with begging if you're begging God. Perhaps if more people in the world begged God instead of begging everybody and everything else, maybe more amazing things would happen. The problem is, it seems in our humanity, we just seem so prone to you know, beg up this tree and beg for that and talk about this and complain about that. But very few of us seem to be willing to humbly start begging God and keep begging God. And, and passionately, constantly just keep begging and pleading with God to work. And I, I look at this and I think, what a beautiful example verse 5 is. Underlined in my Bible, it should be in yours. If not, underline the person's next to you if they won't do it for them. Just, just a beautiful, beautiful example in the early church. Listen, the Holy Spirit sets this before us to give us, as we've said from the beginning, 
examples, paradigms. Look, this is what the church should be doing. This is a beautiful example in the Word of God. When one of the spiritual family is facing difficulty, we should intervene to help. If somebody's dealing with a difficulty, we should want to intervene and help. We're to bear one another's burdens, the Bible says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And look, the most effective way that we can do that, ladies and gentlemen, is to seek God's intervention. Right? Let's say somebody has a major financial crisis or difficulty. It may not be that every person is able to help by supplying money. You may be struggling trying to pay your own bills. But you can pray. You can ask a God of all provision, Lord, I don't have a buck to help him out or to help her out. But Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And Lord, you're a God, so God provide for them. Please, Lord, help them in this way. It may be as somebody struggling with something emotionally or circumstantially. It may be that you just can't say something to comfort them in what they're going through, that no words are going to suffice. But there is a God of all comfort who you can pray and plead with and say, God, please, miraculously comfort their heart. God, do something to take the pain away and give them mercy. And, and look, whatever it may be, the one thing we all can do and the most effective thing we can do is ask for God's involvement. In fact, James chapter 5 tells us that we are to pray for one another. Whether it's we see each other suffering or whether we see each other struggling with sin, and no matter what happens and what's going on, despite the circumstance, remember the doorway of prayer is the one door that's never shut. And we may look at a situation like Peter's here and think, but it's, just, it's impossible. I mean, just come on, look what already happened to James. We know what happens in situations like that. There's just no way. There's just no way. It happened with James. James is dead. Well, look, every situation does not become a determination that everything's always going to unfold the same way. If God gets involved, God has the prerogative to do something different if he wants to. And so here the people, they come together in constant prayers being asked of, of God's help here. Hebrews 4 says, let us come confidently to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I love this beautiful example, the ministry of prayer. And take note in verse 5 as well. I love the way it's written by the Spirit of God. It says, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. It doesn't just say by the prayer team. It doesn't just say by the prayer chain. It doesn't say by the leadership. Those are all true things. It says the church. That is, again, everyone in the church felt that burden continuously in their hearts. Hey, the one thing we can all contribute is we can all pray. We can all do this. We can come together and pray and hold the line spiritually by making intercession to heaven. Well, look what happens as a result. Verse 6, constant prayers offered to God for Peter's situation. And verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, the night before his trial and execution, that night Peter was sleeping. He had a habit of that if you read in the New Testament. Bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. And he, the angel, then struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. So notice in direct connection 
to prayer, what does the Lord do? He starts to move in a miraculous breakthrough and deliverance, and Peter is set free from what he had been shackled by. He's delivered completely. That very night before Peter is about to be put on public trial and executed, it says there in verse 6 that he's sleeping, chained between two Roman guards, two more Roman guards at the door of the prison, and an angel is sent from heaven to come and assist Peter in his dilemma. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to help and aid those of us who are heirs of salvation, God's children. This is the function of angels sent from heaven to assist God's people. And so the angel, it says, appears, verse 6, in the prison there, and the light and the glory of heaven shining from this angel breaks into the room. But Peter, notice, is so soundly sleeping, the angel actually has to strike him on his side, kind of like we have to do with our teenagers, right? No matter what, just you could foghorn just oh you say angel wake up and so an angel of god has to strike peter on the side and wake him up get up he's telling him here wake up and then it says verse seven there that peter's chains just drop off of his wrists they fall off now question how is peter sleeping so soundly amidst the major dilemma he's in circumstantially don't overlook that peter is in prison just prior to this james was beheaded what would give peter any reason to think oh it'll all work out okay it's the night before his execution and the night before his execution would not most people be stressed pacing the cell walking around thinking it through unable to sleep trying to think through every idea every scenario is there something i could do maybe i could talk to the guards and what is peter doing he is soundly sleeping so soundly that the angel has to bang him a few times would you get up so we can get out of here now what peter is doing here this is a man resting in faith resting in the promise of god you might want to write your notes or your Bible, John chapter 21, because there, remember Jesus speaking to Peter told him that he would die and be put to death in his old age. Well, guess what? Peter knows I'm not an old man yet. I'm not elderly yet. So no matter how this looks, I don't know what God's going to do or how God's going to do it. And I have no human explanation, but Peter knows that his death cannot come to pass because he has the word of the Lord. He has a promise from God and he knows the Lord is faithful and he knows the Lord is never limited and that God always comes through and God is in charge. So he's resting in faith. And you know what? For our lives, when we go through our hardships and trials and scary situations, we need to learn to rest in faith to rest in faith. Are we going to face our own scenarios that are hard and challenging and mentally could cause us anguish and worry? And yeah, absolutely. We can fill in our own stories there. But we also can rest in faith. We can be still and know that he's God. We don't necessarily have to torture ourselves with the worry and the anxiety and the agita and, and have to pop pills and do everything we can to somehow sedate ourselves we can actually rest in God and let the reality of God's power and authority 
bring peace that passes understanding into our soul and rest in faith. Lord, I don't understand and I don't know and it doesn't look good, but Lord, I trust you. I just trust that you are in control and you love me enough to send your son and you've given me promises of your word. And the Bible says, he who keeps his mind stayed on the Lord will be kept by God in perfect peace. And so Peter here, able to be resting. And notice, despite how strong the hindering force in Peter's life, despite the chains, remember, that were keeping him shackled. Do you see what the end of verse 7 says there? It says the chains fell off his wrists. Point, the Lord set him free instantaneously. Chains that had been shackling him, something that he was shackled and bound by, the Lord broke the chains. The Lord broke the chains. The thing that he was in bondage to, the Lord broke the chains. Miraculously. There was no intervention. There was no therapy. There were no steps. There, were no, there was no program. The Lord broke the chains. And God, help us to know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he can do the same by his power in our lives. Whatever you may be bound by, whatever you may have been bound by, it doesn't have to remain that way. Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, the Lord can break the chains. And we should never fail to, to remember that, to believe that, to seek that, and to know that the Lord can give powerful deliverance in lives. And for those we love and care about that perhaps maybe are imprisoned currently or bound by something that we should pray and plead and ask of God, Lord, would you break the chains? Would you set them free? Would you miraculously just deliver them from what they're shackled by or held by? His chains fall off. Look at verse 8 says, and then the angel says to him, okay, Peter, gird yourself. That is, get dressed, tie on your sandals, put your shoes on. And so Peter did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out, verse 9, and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So because this thing is so ex amazing, this whole miraculous experience, it's somewhat surreal. And the Bible says here, Peter, having been woken up from a deep sleep, isn't quite fully sure exactly what's unfolding circumstantially. He's kind of going through the motions and not even realizing, is this like a vision or a dream of something God could do or might do? And at this point, he's almost somewhat half perplexed and not certain 100%. Verse 10 says, and when they were then past the first and second guard posts, they then came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which then opened to them of its own accord. You know, the Greek word is there's it's literally automaticus. Sound familiar? That's the first automatic door right there in the Bible. God, God created that. Opened its own accord, just automaticus. The iron gate opened up and they went out, went down the street. And then immediately, verse 10 says, the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand, he says, of Herod and the expectation of the Jewish people. So as Peter is following the angel out now of the jail cell, past the first guard post, past the second guard post, you notice none of the guards are even seeing them or none of the guards are doing anything to 
stop them. It just They're just walking past Roman guard posts and the Lord is divinely somehow restraining any force that would have hindered or gotten in the way. And just by the favor of God, the power of God, I don't know how the Lord's doing it, but he is. I don't care how he's doing it if he does it in my life. Whatever you want to do, Lord, just do it. Just restrain people. Just deal with issues and hindrances. And So they're walking past guard post to guard post, but then they come, look at verse 10, then they come to what? The iron gates. Oh, no. Everything was going great, but they have to have an iron gate on this city. An iron gate? Well, everything was going great, but there you go. That, that's it. That's the closer right there. Iron gate. But look, the iron gate does what? It says it opens automatically. The Lord just pushes his automatic door opener. Just The gate just opens right up for him. And like every other doorway that was needed in this process, the Lord took care of it. And then what happens? When they come to the most impossible door, the Lord opens that one too. The Lord opens that one just the same because nothing's too hard for the Lord and there's no door he cannot open. And listen, the Lord has brought us all, has he not, through different experiences. He's opened different doors in our life, took us through things in our life. Do not ever look at any doorway and think that somehow God can't open that door too. You may be right now facing the iron gate and you're going, oh, I just, I mean, I, and, and, well, I know the Lord did this in my life, but I, you don't understand. This, I mean, this is, this is an iron gate, Tony. I mean, this, is, this is an iron gate. It's different. Not to God, it's not. To God, it's not at all. To us, yes. But God doesn't evaluate things of level of difficulties the way we do as human beings, right? That, that's what we always have to remember. God doesn't evaluate things the same way. So whatever that iron gate or thing may be that could hold you back or hinder you that's so intimidating, listen, it, it's, it's nothing that's intimidating God. Believe what God can do. Believe what God is able to accomplish if that's a part of his plan. So after Peter's safely down the street, verse 11 says Peter kind of comes to his senses and he says, wow, wow, now I know, he says, that this is the Lord, that this is really happening, he says. The Lord has sent his angel and the Lord's delivered me from this situation. He's fully aware that the Lord has worked and intervened in this situation. And it's a good thing when we as the Lord's people recognize that what's happening is an intervention of the Lord. It's really good when we come to that conclusion like Peter did here. Hey, this isn't, this isn't coincidence. This is totally divine, man. This is the Lord. There's no way this could be happening if it wasn't the Lord who was intervening and doing what he was doing. Verse 12 goes on to say, so when he had then considered this, he then came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where notice, verse 12 again, I like the language, where many were gathered together praying. So Peter immediately goes to seek out the fellowship of believers as he's delivered now, where he knew, it seems, that it was a common house. They probably assembled. Maybe Peter knew this was the regular place where they would get together for meetings or times of prayer. Or maybe perhaps Peter's just going to what he knew was the church's regular prayer meeting. And so he goes and shows up where he knows they would be to report what the Lord has done and to probably join them in what they're doing. And it says when he arrives there in verse 12 that he finds, it says, there were many gathered together Praying, again, can I emphasize the language, so beautiful, so helpful. Many of the Lord's people gathered together praying, many people from the church at this prayer meeting happening in this house. 
Lord, help us. May he give us more of this in the church today, presently, in this generation. What a wonderful, needed thing that we would assemble for times of prayer and see the value of that, see the benefit of that, the byproduct of that. See the results of what comes when we plead with heaven and we seriously ask God to do stuff. And not necessarily just a few who have an interest in prayer, but many gathering together in prayer, pleading with God, saying, God, we realize this is where your power is summoned from. With pleading with you, with asking of you to intervene. Lord, this is where you begin to have your heart stirred to move. This is what precedes, folks, God working, people praying. And we can nod our head in the sermon all we want until we bow our head in prayer. It's not acting in obedience. Many beautifully, it says, gather together praying. Look what happens as Peter shows up at this meeting. It's quite humorous. It says that Peter shows up where many are praying in verse 13. As Peter knocks on the door of the prayer meeting out of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So imagine this. Rhoda here, this young gal, hears Peter knocking, and then she says, who is it? And he says, it's, it's Peter. And she's so excited that it's Peter, she doesn't even open the gate. She runs back into the meeting to tell the people, and it says the beginning of verse 15 that she goes and tells them, hey, Peter's at the gate. He's, he's knocking at the gate. He's, he's there. Verse 15, look what they said. You are beside yourself. Your translators say, you're out of your mind. The idea is the people say, Rhoda, come on, be realistic. Don't you remember? We're praying for Peter. He's in prison. What do you mean he's at the gate? I mean, come on, you're being a little presumptuous. What do you, you know, uh, you know, just name it and claim it stuff. We're praying for him. What do you mean he's at the gate? How could he be at the gate? That's why we're praying for him. Come back into the prayer meeting, Rhoda. Maybe you think you're seeing a vision or something. So verse 15 goes on to say she kept insisting that it was so. No, really. It, I'm telling you, Peter is free. He's at the gate. So then they say, well, maybe it's his guardian angel. Maybe it's just his guardian angel, Rhoda. He came to kind of assure us that Peter's doing okay and he's protecting him and watching over him. So verse 16 says, now Peter continued knocking. Imagine the poor guy out there. He keeps knocking on the door. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So finally, after this persistence and Peter's knocking here and they're refusing to believe that it's him, the door opens and they're struck with amazement that Peter's actually set free from prison and he's right there in the middle of their prayer meeting. Now, this shows us something. It shows us that they are actually shocked that God did what they asked. It shows us they are clearly surprised and astonished. God actually did what we were praying for. Can, can you believe this? The thing we asked God to do, it actually happened. And they're genuinely shocked. They're surprised and they're amazed that God performed what they requested. Now, is that not much like us? Right, We pray for something, we pray for something, we pray for, <laughs> for something, and then when it happens, we're like, whoa, get out of town. Do you know what happened? Can you I can't believe, I can't believe what happened. Well, wait a minute. Weren't you praying for that? 
Weren't we praying? Why are we shocked when it happened? Weren't we praying for that? I mean, isn't the whole purpose of why we pray? Because we believe God listens and that God actually has the power. to. Isn't that why we pray? But then we're shocked when God does something. Now, what this reveals to us is this. Apparently, they were praying, but they weren't praying expectantly. They were praying, but they weren't praying expectantly. Question, when I pray, when you pray, do we pray expectantly? We should, because Jesus said to us in his own words, Mark chapter 11, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and then you will have them. And he said that in light of having doubt in our hearts. He says, when you pray, believe expectantly that the Lord can and will do such things as a part of your prayer. Now, interesting, despite their imperfect faith, and follow with me here, despite their imperfect faith and lacking expectancy that the Lord was really going to do this, which is evident, God still moved powerfully by his grace anyway. And the Lord still performed a mighty work. Now, that's a reminder, and it's a reminder of this. It's not just the amount of our faith that produces the answer to prayer. Now, that's important because some groups will try and convey to us if we just believe enough, we can actually almost sort of will things into existence. So if we just believe enough and claim enough and almost kind of you know demand and, and push the, the lever that when it gets to a certain point, if we can just believe and believe and command it and demand it, and it's almost like this lever in heaven tips and God goes, oh, they tipped the barometer. I guess we got to do it. I mean, they're claiming it now. We got They're claiming it. They're claiming it. They, they, I mean, that's, we, we can't. No. Do you know why God did this? Not because they willed it to existence. That's pretty clear. They didn't even believe it was going to happen. God did it because it was his will. That's why. And, and, and it's just a good fitting reminder. They have been perfect faith, but God graciously worked because it was his will. In prayer, always remember this balance. In prayer, two things matter to bring about a produced result. One is that we should pray with expectancy and believe because the Bible is very clear that God honors faith. And we should believe. And unbelief can hinder things. And so certainly we should pray expectantly and rely on God, but the sovereign will of God is ultimately his determination, decision of things are going to come to pass. And I don't understand how those two things work in conjunction, but they both matter. My faith and belief that God will do it and God's sovereign will and determination if it's his will and plan to do it. And somehow those two things come together and both are equally essential for fruitful prayer. Now, as the believers are astonished and celebrating this, Peter gets a little concerned. Verse 17, he starts motioning with his hand, keeps silent and declared how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And then he departed and went to another place. So Peter quiets them down. He's probably thinking maybe the people are looking for him. You know, they're probably jumping around and super excited and celebrating. And so he starts to tell them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. He's given testimony. And he says, hey, make sure you tell this to James and the others. Why? Because when the Lord does something powerful in our lives, we should share that stuff. Because that's the kind of stuff that encourages other believers, that God answers prayer, that the Lord can work in their situation. So Peter's telling them what the Lord had done so they could be encouraged and give God the glory. And then for the welfare of these believers, Peter, it says, departs and goes to another place. Now that's using real practical wisdom. Peter there shows that the power of God matters, but so does being practical and wise as well. 
Peter says, I should go somewhere else because in case they're looking for me, I don't want any of you to be injured or harmed somehow. So he departs. And again, I love the constant interconnection of both the power of God at work miraculously and at the same time, the practical wisdom of just good judgment among the Lord's people that Peter says, you know what? It probably would be good if I depart and go somewhere else right now. And again, these two things working collectively. Always remember this. Will God work miraculously when he has to? Absolutely. But there are also times when there's such a thing called good judgment and just being practical and being wise. And if it doesn't require a miracle, use wisdom and do what's practical. God's miracle will come through when God's miracle needs to come through, but be practical and wise in your dealings as well. Now, one question you might ask as you look at this is, wow, I mean, why in the world would God let James die so young and Peter gets to be spared and go on and live a long life? Do you know my answer to that? I don't know. God's sovereign. Apparently, James's course was done and Peter's wasn't. And so they both love the Lord. They both serve the Lord. One dies young. The other lives a long life. But we don't remember. In the end of the day, it's not about the quantity of years you live. It's about the quality of life you live. And when your race is done, your race is done. The important thing is to run your race well and with the quality you can in the interim. Well, verse 18 says, as it was day, the Next day, the stir of the soldiers about what had happened over Peter began to arise. And when Herod searched for him and couldn't find him, he examined those guards and commanded that they should be put to death. That was typical. If a Roman lost a prisoner, those soldiers were put to death. So he now executes in his anger these people who let Peter get free in his estimation. And then Herod, this tough guy, this arrogant ruler, he goes down from Judea to Caesarea and he stays there. Look at this last little story as it closes. Kind of an interesting closure to all this. Verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. Uh, It says, having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, and they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So the people of Tyre and Sidon, north of Judea, they're dependent upon Herod for supply of food. What that looked like, we don't know, but something happened, it says here, where they had done something wrong and they severely angered Herod. Herod was not a good guy to anger as a ruler. And so something happened, therefore, which likely threatened maybe sanctions or the cutoff of food supply, which drastically hurts the people of Tyre and Sidon, not only the economy, but now threatens their survival because their food supply is cut off. So they're very concerned. They want to win back favor with Herod. They're afraid of him, but it says they befriend one of his personal aides, Blastus, and through that they set up a meeting where they can seek peace and make peace with Herod. So verse 21 says in light of that, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Josephus, the historian, says on that day, Herod was wearing a robe that was interwoven with actual strands of silver. So as he's sitting outside in this open amphitheater type area with the sun glistening down on his silver robe, it's almost like he's shining. It's like he's glowing. Like he looks like this powerful, impressive person that he wants to be known as in all of his glory. And then it says he begins to give this oration or speech to the people assembled that day and of course they want to win his favor back so verse 22 says the people kept shouting the voice of a god 
and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. They're so overwhelmed by his impressive appearance and he's got this very moving capacity to give this incredible speech that he delivers. He's a golden-tongued order and the people are just so amazed and stirred by Herod that day. They start saying, this guy, he's like a God, man. And they begin to exalt him and elevate him and they begin to praise him and all the emotion in the moment. They're so moved by his words that he's able to speak. And so they begin to honor and adore him, the voice of a God and not a man. Well, look at verse 23. It says, and the people kept shouting that. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Don't you appreciate the Bible's honesty? Look what happens here. Apparently, Herod so deeply enjoyed all the praise from his audience and he so enjoyed all the exaltation and he allowed the people to speak to him in a way to exalt him and he embraced the glory for himself and he refused to deny that and deflect the glory to God. And as the result of that, what happened? The destruction of this man's leadership and ultimately the ruin of his entire life. In one translation renders that instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. And Josephus tells us it was some condition involving worms, parasites, something that he became dreadfully ill and died within a matter of a few days. Hey, I'll tell you something. In light of God being the ultimate authority, how dangerous it is for any of us when pride causes us in our heart to take credit or adoration from people and not give glory to God. It's a great offense to God. It's a very dangerous condition to be in which provokes his severe discipline. Well, verse 24 concludes by saying, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Notice, Herod thought he was so powerful. He thought he was so impressive. He thought he was so great. He abused his authority, harmed the Lord's people, tried to stop the work of God. But do you see how easily he was overruled by the authority of God? When God had just about enough of Herod, God shut his mouth and ended his life. That's pretty severe. And yet the work of God that he was trying to stop grew and multiplied. God said, Herod, I've had about enough of your mouth and about enough of your words. But my word, nobody's going to stop that. Amen. It's going to grow and it's going to multiply because again, it does not matter what people do, folks. God's the ultimate authority. God's the ultimate authority. The buck stops there and God will have his way in the end. Ephesians 1 says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even the things people do that are intended for evil, God can take them and use them for a good purpose because God will have his way. And so we need to remember for our lives, despite what's happening, despite how it looks, can I encourage you this morning, rest in God's authority. Rest in God's authority and let's seek God in those times to work by his power and never forget that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray.